This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein, Center Director here for Leadership and Change. And I'm with uh, my good friend and colleague, Anne Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I do want to remind you all that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time right here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us, of course, on Twitter at SXM Business. So, Anne, before we plunge in, just uh, a couple seconds here on the week that was. Spot any leadership out there that caught your attention over the last seven days? (laughs) Well, Mike, uh, you catch me off a conversation with some colleagues at the Aspen Institute, the Business and Society Program in which we were just talking about developing future leaders through education. Seems <laughs> and like a good idea. A good idea. And uh, you will be interested to know that we talked about a number of barriers, individual, interpersonal, structural, but also uh, said that faculty members in the classroom are masters of their domain and actually can make changes that have the potential of having impact in their student body. So I'll Great. just share that with you. <laughs> well, and then just to use the reference to the Aspen Institute as a segue for where we're going, the Aspen Institute, and then you've been involved in this for years, has been campaigning, uh, articulating and then campaigning for a more diverse curriculum in business schools around the world. And they've done a lot of pioneering work on that, which leads me to an introduction here to Paul Washington, who is executive director of the Environmental, Social and Governance Center at the Conference Board. Paul, uh, great to have you on our show again. Delighted to be back. Thanks, Mike and Ann, good to be with you. And Paul, it couldn't be more timely to have you here in light of what I've just read off by way of your title, which is director of the Environmental, Social and Governance Center, ESG, no less, at at the Conference Board. So, Paul, to get us going, if you could offer just a couple sentences on the conference board. Many of our listeners will know about it, but some may not. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a momentous event in Glasgow, Scotland, all about the environment. So anyway, before we get to the latter, just a couple words about the conference board. Sure. So the conference board was founded in 1916. It is the world's leading nonpartisan nonprofit think tank devoted to serving business and society. So our mission is to help companies become better at performing and better corporate citizens. Um, And I lead the ESG Center, which the name sort of captures what we do, but we focus on corporate governance, sustainability, and corporate citizenship. Great. All right, Paul, as I've already alluded to to where we're probably going to take this, let's talk about sustainability. Uh, the events uh, in Scotland uh, in this period here, looking to keep the earth from going more than about a degree and a half Celsius uh, uh, upward, or we're certainly not more than that if we can help uh, uh, prevent that. Just to pivot now towards the role that business can play in preventing a, a calamitous environmental 
um, warming that we've already witnessed and we now appreciate the consequence of consequences of. Paul, let's just uh, begin with uh, your role at the conference board and just walk through some of the things that you in your position have done in collaboration with your members to help companies help the earth stay where it should be as opposed to warming too much. So Paul, sure. over to you. Yeah, sure. Well, we do a number of things. Um, we issue publications uh, on, on this topic. We've got one coming up soon, which are the questions that every board should be asking about climate these days. Um, and give you a bit of a preview on that. Um, they should probably not start with the question of what is the company doing to climate, but rather what is the climate doing to the company? Huh. Because that is a much more universally important question that every company can get on board with. And then once you've talked about the impact of climate on the company, then you've engaged your directors and then they can start to say, OK, so what's our role in, in addressing this? So that's one thing. So we put out a number of publications. We do uh, we've got webcasts that we bring in members to talk, for example, we'll do one on what's going on with Glasgow. We also do member convenings. So we bring our members together for Chatham House rule discussions on topics like setting um, uh, goals relating to scope three emissions. Uh, I won't get too technical with you, um, but we recently did a roundtable on how companies can organize themselves to become more sustainable. You know, one quarter of US companies only have a single person in their sustainability team. Now, most US companies have somewhere about two to five. And you know, two to five isn't all that bad. And even if you go up a few, you're looking at relatively small teams at companies that can drive transformation. And they're not looking for much bigger teams. In fact, a smaller team, uh, this says something to leadership, may be more effective at driving sustainability within a business than otherwise. So whether it's in publications, webcasts, podcasts, uh, uh, roundtable convenings, we also have the world's most powerful database on companies' disclosures on environmental and social issues. Um, we're releasing that later in uh, November. So in all those ways, we're trying to help companies become more responsible corporate citizens. Well, let me do a quick follow on, then I'm going to hand the baton over to my friend, Anne. In your work with companies, convening many people, as you often do, uh, just to sit down and talk uh, behind closed doors, you survey companies, issue lots of reports. We're going to talk about a couple later on. Mm -hmm. In your own experience, when it comes to environmental sustainability, what one of those do you think is most effective in moving the needle on companies thinking about how to become more involved in environmental sustainability? They all, of course, register, uh, but which of the of the, your various methods do you think is most most effective in helping companies appreciate how to not only react to the environmental changes, but also to contribute to positive change in the environment? I think the most effective way to do it is not to approach companies in a scolding manner and say, you are bad companies. Look how bad you've been for all these decades. Um, stop being bad. It is actually to talk to companies about ESG issues in general and environment in particular as business issues, right? In fact, if you want a 
senior executives or board members' eyes potentially to glaze over, you say, well, let's talk about this, this thing called ESG. They're not even always sure what the S stands for, right? Um, and then they don't realize, no, these are, these are really profound business issues that if you want the company to be around for a while in a thriving society, they're ones you have to address, but you phrase them as business issues. And you talk not only about the risks, but you talk about the opportunities. And if you do it that way, if you approach companies and say, these are real business issues, long-term business issues, and there are things that uh, not only have a risk avoidance aspect to them, but an opportunity side to them, then you get them to listen and then you get them to pay attention. You get them to be creative. That's, I mean, we were just talking to, and this was public so I can say it, it was in a Chatham House World discussion with um, Rockwell Automation. And when they were revising their sustainability strategy, they realized that, um, for them, it's, it wasn't a silo thing. It was a mainstream thing. And they realized the thing that they could do best was use their own technology to help all of their business customers become more environmentally responsible. So they took sustainability and environmental responsibility out of a silo of do-gooders and put it into the mainstream of what we can do as a business. And now they're harnessing the full power of their business to help not just themselves, but all of their customers become more environmentally responsible. It's that that's that's my suggestion to how to get people uh, not to sort of close off their minds when you start talking to them about this. So, Paul, that that's great. And let's bring you in. Oh, thank you, Mike. And Paul, a pleasure to speak with you about, especially about a, a topic I very much care about. I really like the way you frame this. That you talk to companies. Uh, about what how climate is impacting the company. That's the starting point. You're not starting with a more broad philosophical question. Do you believe in climate change? No. Mm -hmm. What impact is climate having on companies? And I appreciated your list of activities, things that you that you are engaged in. I'm I'm curious about how how do you measure your impact? How do you know whether or not the um, initiatives that you, you've taken are making a difference? That's a really good question. I think the way we, we measure it is by what we hear um, from our members about how they've been able to take our research, participation in our programs, and apply it to uh, their companies. We recently, and again, this is, I can say this, Publicly, you know, we met with the senior management team of Goodyear Tire, right? And the head of sustainability from Goodyear, and it, it's, a, it's a great American company, been around for a long time. They take sustainability very seriously. We went in and talked to them about the six key challenges that every company is facing these days in sustainability. And their new head of sustainability, Ellis Jones, said that was the most practical discussion we've ever had about sustainability. I talked to the board of directors of another major chemical company, and they came back and said, you caused us to think about all of this in a new way. Mm -hmm. So part of what I'm saying is, you know, we hear from our members about the difference that we're, we're making. Um, but I think our impact is going to play out over time, right? Because these issues are going to be addressed over time. So our job really is we don't rate companies. We don't rank companies. We tried to provide them with the frameworks and the questions that they can ask back in their own boardrooms and their own C-suites um, that they can then apply within their company. So I think 
the way we'll measure our success, and I don't mean to be, you know, to <laughs> elude the question here, but it's going to play out over time. Um, and I actually think this ties into a report we recently put out on corporate racial equality investments a year after George Floyd. A lot of companies in the last year have been laying the groundwork for what they're going to do on racial equality because they realize it's a long-term challenge. So a lot of what we're doing in the ESG Center is helping companies lay the groundwork. Very good. Thank you, Paul. And now Mike began by asking you about E and mm -hmm. your approach to addressing E. Is the approach similar when it comes to uh, social issues and govern governance? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the other areas we also, uh, you know, we we try to do generally is bring together the empirical research power of the conference board. Um, and that means global surveys. It means access to databases on everything that's happening in the Russell 3000 that we can glean from uh, public company reports and websites and all that sort of stuff. So we take the empirical research and then we combine it with these uh, Chatham House rule convenings. So we get member experiences. And it's that alchemy of combining empirical research with, um, with real world experience that produces frankly, really fresh insights. And I'll just give you one that, that where, where data alone would not have been enough. So we did a survey on, again, companies, uh, what the actions they had taken uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And 60% of them, uh, this was relating to corporate citizenships, 60% of the firm said they have not encountered any issues with the nonprofits that they're seeking to fund to address racism. Well, you know, if you're a researcher, you look at that and say, that's pretty darn good. It looks like there aren't issues with nonprofits. When we talked to our members, they said, that is a red flag. If you don't think your nonprofits are having issues in dealing with the big checks you're writing to them, if you don't think that that's a real problem, that they've got problems, you aren't actually talking to them. So it's the combination of the research and then the discussion that really helps. And I know you all are Wharton, and, and what, you know, I, I, I taught corporate governance in law school for 15 years. And one of the challenges I always faced was a lot of the academic literature out there was just looking at governance practices and trying to match it up against TSR, right? And you can come with, a, with almost any results you want that way. What was often missing was the match of that kind of empirical analysis with discussion with human beings, right? And we tried to bring the two of them together and, and that's, sort of, that's sort of our approach. Very good. I, I appreciate that. Mike, please. Yeah, I'm going to jump right in. We do need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Yusame. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall. Our guest today is Paul Washington of the Conference Board. And he, as we mentioned at the outset, is the Executive Director, director of the ESG Center at the Conference Board. And Paul, the G, of course, references governance. And I've learned that you have a new report out on governance uh, done in collaboration, I believe, with PwC, and it includes some surprising findings. So let's jump into that for a few minutes. Well, what, what's new? Yeah, sure. Happy to do so. So this is the second time we've done this with PwC. We surveyed 500 C-suite executives in the United States, and we asked them about the effectiveness of their of their boards. And one of the things that was striking is that boards scored very high on the things that you would traditionally associate with an effective board. 
Uh, understanding of the company's strategy, 84% um, said, yes, our boards get our strategy. 79%, yes, they understand the risks and opportunities. 73%, um, they get the competitive landscape. So that's great, business set, right? And then they also said, you know what? Our directors are also independent. Like around 90% said, we have no issues with their independence. And something that really struck me is they said in April numbers, our boards are not too risk adverse because one of the often complaints you get out of management is like our boards are all concerned about their reputation. So they're always putting a brakes on. We can't do anything really innovative because they they're worried that it'll blow up in their faces and they're, you know, they're they're scared about harming their own reputation. Well, that's not an issue, according to the executives we we surveyed. But still, the executives, 55 percent of them rated board effectiveness, their own boards, as only fair, and 16% as poor. So that's 71% on kind of the weaker side of the scale in terms of board effectiveness. And why was that? I think there were three main reasons. Um, the first is board composition. Um, you know, uh, there were a goodly percentage of folks who said that the board, um, in fact, 74% of the executives said at least two directors should be replaced, not one, but two, all right? So that means they're looking for some fresh blood on the boards. Uh, the second thing is 23% said that they're only, they're only 23% said their board comes fully prepared to meetings. That's, a, that's also a red flag. And then finally, specific expertise, somewhere between 60 and 70% of the folks surveyed said the board lacked expertise in areas such as ESG, cybersecurity, data security, and data privacy. So specialized expertise. They may get your strategy, or they certainly do get your strategy, but they don't do. So it's a composition, it's a preparedness, and it's specialized expertise. And I can talk about some of our recommended solutions, but that, you know, but those that, that that's kind of interesting findings that the things that for decades people were focusing on, okay, you need a board that actually understands the business, you need a board that's independent. Okay, you're done. Yep. You got a good board. No, that's not enough anymore. Paul, a quick follow-up question on that. And that is who should grab the tiger by the tail in this case? And what I mean by that is, is, is this something for the general counsel or the secretary of the board or the board chair or the CEO, or maybe all the above to look at the results? And in yeah, the it's, it's, it's all of the above. And let me talk about first on the director side, because it is really the director's responsibility. If you've got a composition problem with the board and so forth, and maybe they're not coming prepared, there's a lot the board needs to do. So our recommendation is to have a very rigorous board self-evaluation, not a check the box exercise and just sort of say, where do we rate on a scale of one to five on these things, but really talk about whether your board is effective, have a meaningful discussion on board composition, make sure that you've got the board you need for the challenges you're facing, and be prepared to have the difficult conversations with telling folks, you know, it may be time to move on. But you do it in a way that's not personally insulting. You say, look, the board's needs have changed, right? And by the way, as a culture on a board, we're not expecting you to be like, with apologies, tenured professors or federal judges, you're, it's okay you know, to, to serve your 10, 10, 8, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is, and then move on. So I think a, a rigorous board evaluation process that leads to that commitment 
to uh, board refreshment, to board diversity, and frankly, to making sure that our, your board members are not stretched so thin that they cannot be prepared. So that's on the board side. Your chair or your governance chair should do that. On the management side, um, this is primarily the CEO, the general counsel, and the corporate secretary. They've got to make sure that management is doing their part. So your board members aren't prepared. It could be your fault. It could be that you're overwhelming them with a bunch of paper that no one can make their way through. So make sure your board materials are clear, they're concise, and they're in context so your board knows what to do with them. Um, it's also a problem uh, when it comes to, okay, does the board know enough about ESG or data security, data privacy? That could also be your fault management, right? Like, you, you know, there's no way your board can have an expert in every area that you want to have your board know about. Focus on board fluency, not on board native expertise. It's fine to have people with native expertise, but educate your board. Take the time. Make sure that you're speaking to them in terms that bring them along. And you conference board has a whole lot of resources to help you do it, right? But focus on board fluency. And then you'll find that maybe you might not even need as much turnover as you're thinking about. But anyway, that's what you can do on the board side, rigorous self-evaluations. On the management side, focus on your materials, focus on fluency. You can probably move the needle on all of those bad numbers. Yeah, Paul, very good guidance in that it's very tangible mm -hmm. and doable. So let's grab a hold of the uh, this tiger <laughs> by the tail here and let's make it happen. And we're about five minutes out from a very brief break, but why don't you grab the baton? Oh, good. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so, Paul, we know two approaches, uh, work with the directors and also uh, work with management. On the director side, you referenced doing a really rigorous board evaluation. I'm curious, what would that look like? That's a fabulous question. Um, so I actually think that it has a number of components to it. Um, the, the first is um, have a, a sort of structured discussion with each member of your board. Don't just leave this to a survey, but have uh, a set of questions you're going to ask about board composition, board leadership, board committee structure, um, about board meetings, about the materials you receive, uh, about um, succession planning and about board and committee effectiveness. And finally, a section where you talk to each of your directors about what they've learned from their other company boards, whether they're management or they're on the board, that could be applied here. So you have a discussion on those six or seven topics, you cover them all, and a good practice is to have members of your nominating committee actually take the lead in interviewing two or three other members of your board. You then get back together as a nominating committee and you share what you heard and you talk about it and you digest it. And then you come up working probably with management with an action plan. And then you present the results of that um, discussion and with the action plan to the full board in executive session to consider. So you do that, that's really helpful, but you also have to have another conversation. And this is the trickier one to have. Um, and that doesn't necessarily even involve having the one-on-one -on -one discussions with your other directors. You as the board probably know who's not carrying their weight right now. You as the board probably already know who's kind of overcommitted or whatever the issue may be. 
You can have talk about that within the nominating committee, make sure that there is in fact the consensus around that. And then your governance chair, your lead independent director, someone can reach out to that director and have a conversation and say, you know, how are you, do you think you're doing as a director? That director you may find is actually eager to get off the board, but feels embarrassed to do so, right? Um, because they feel like they're letting everyone down by moving on. You open the door with that director to say, to say, what do you think about how, you know, how do you feel about how you're doing? That, that kind of more informal aspect of the self-evaluation and looking at yourselves and then the outreach, that's the equivalent of the action plan. You then talk to the director, you engage in that conversation in hopefully a non-threatening and respectful way. Uh, that I think the combination of those things make for an effective board self-evaluation. I'm hearing that leadership really matters and especially <laughs> at the head of the board. <laughs> yeah. And Paul, I'm also, I'm also hearing that the issues of the board are not just out there. They are out there. We have to recognize them. And we got to get our hands around them. Much is expected of boards these days the way it would not have been, say, 15 years ago, uh, both internally by top management and obviously outside constituencies, including investors. So this is a good time to take a look at your board uh, <laughs> and, and take action. So, uh, Paul, great to continue our discussion, and Anne's going to get it going. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, you gave us a wonderful explanation of how you go about doing a rigorous evaluation of the board. And of course, uh, in the initials ESG, we're talking about governance. How do you see though the interplay between those, the environment and the social and governance? It's a great question. Um, look, I, I think it's very important not to forget the G in ESG. Um, you really have to make sure that you've got the governance right, both at the board level and frankly, at the management level to help companies address the broader array of issues than they've ever addressed before. So we all know that companies are on the front lines in addressing environmental issues and social issues and social issues embrace, you know, about a hundred different issues and they're ever evolving. So, you know, companies are being called on to develop and exercise sort of muscle memory that you just don't have, right? And so you've got to make sure you've got the right structures at the board level and, um, and the right processes and so forth and the right people at the board level and at the management level to handle this remarkably increased level of issues that you're dealing with. And I'd also note at the same time that you're dealing with a broader array of issues, you're dealing with a fundamental shift underway from stockholder to stakeholder capitalism. So the what is becoming more challenging and the who is becoming more challenging because companies are now, you know, not that they ever really were, but there's clearly a shift underway. And we've got some recent data I can share with you on companies focusing primarily on the welfare of uh, serving the welfare of their stockholders to now serving the welfare of their multiple stakeholders, society at large and the environment. So the what's getting harder and the who is getting is getting bigger and yeah. broader. So, so, Paul, tell us about the data that you've collected. Sure. So we recently did, this is again, another great example of the conference board um, combining empirical research with roundtables. Um, so we surveyed um, a couple hundred uh, C-suite executives around the globe to talk about the shift from stockholder to stakeholder capitalism. I'll give you a bit of a preview. 90% um, of those executives believe that this shift is 
underway in general. And about 80% say it's underway at their organization. So this is a real shift. It is a durable shift. This is not just a fact because it is enforced by investors themselves, institutional investors, especially index funds who want you to take the longer term, broader focus. Uh, it's reinforced by regulators, by your customers, particularly by your employees, as well as by board members and um, C-suite executives themselves, plus your business partners. So there is a real shift underway that, that's happening um, across the globe, especially in the United States, uh, toward a stakeholder focus. And its implications for the C-suite are actually quite substantial. Um, it, you know, among other things, you know, you need to have a strategy to deal with all of these new folks who are, or these folks who've been around for a long time, whom you might have sort of largely regard, not largely, but you sort of, you knew you had to do right by your employees because happy employees make better products, make better, Profits, right? Um, happy and customers. It's the same thing. Well, now it's not just there being a means to the end. Um, their welfare is also an end of your corporation because that's going to be to everyone's benefit. So, you know, it's not like this is a major, like you're not going from one end of the spectrum to the other, absolutely, but there is this shift under underway. And so you've got to have a different style of leader. I, I think a couple of things that come through are. Trust is more important than ever before. Trust among the C-suite, trust between the C-suite and the employees, trust between the company and uh, the broader community. Um, that's that's absolutely important as you're dealing with um, with these topics. Um, an, another thing that's actually really important for leaders is what one roundtable participant referred to as radical humanity. You, there is a huge opportunity for leaders in this environment to um, motivate a whole new, not, and it's not just millennials and Gen Z and whatever letter of the alphabet we're up to now, right? Um, it, but it's really everyone responds to authenticity in their leaders. And if you genuinely believe in the broader public mission, of your firm, you know, with the purpose, why you actually do what you do. And every company has one. It's a bit different. It's, it's different for everyone. But if you really can articulate the why and, and you believe it in your bones and you convey it, um, that's a powerful motivating tool for you as a leader. And we've seen during the pandemic that uh, the leaders who were able to maintain the trust and confidence of their employees during this time was really just as important as a leader who can maintain the trust and confidence of their board or of their investor base. Mike, do I have time for one more? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, Paul, earlier in the first half of the hour, you talked about the PWC survey and you gave a critique of boards, board comp composition. Are they fully prepared? Is there sufficient expertise? Can we take um, lessons learned from that conversation and bring it over here to your conversation about the C-suite. Is there actually, are we going to be witnessing a change in the composition of the C-suite? Yeah, actually, you know, you may see some 
changes in the positions in the C-suite. Um, so, you know, about 20%, we've got a report out just this week on sustainability. About 20% of U.S. companies have a chief sustainability officer who reports to the CEO. We expect that to increase over time. You don't need to have that position. You can be very successful without it, but I expect you'll see that. But I think the change that you're going to see in the C-suite is that everybody's going to be getting a bit more into everybody else's business. Um, and, you know, because issues are no longer siloed, that's no longer just a legal issue, it's no longer just a financial issue, no longer a communications issue, it's everybody's issue. E and S issues are everybody's issue. And so you have to have the G within management, within the C-suite to be able to grapple with these issues. So you actually, you know, a lot of times the CEO gets together with their direct reports and they just talk, right? And that's all fine, but you may actually need a little bit of, you may need to have someone there who's helping keep, just like you do with the board, the discussion on track and make sure everyone's got information before they get together and start to try to solve problems as the C-suite. So you may need a touch more, I don't want to, don't want to scare people with the word governance for the C-suite, but you may want to make sure you've got the mechanisms to get the information in front of your um, members of the C-suite so they got the information they need. Um, and that they've got mechanisms to start to grapple with making decisions on these broader issues. So yeah, you may see some changes in the composition. You may see some changes in the governance. People have to be, just like we talked about fluency, people in the C-suite have to become more fluent in each other's business, right? Because all, and in these new issues that are coming up. So yeah, there's definitely a correlative. I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you, Mike, over to you. Yeah, Paul, uh, thank you on all the above. I, I'm gonna pull us back to the S and the ESG formula for just a, a couple of minutes. On the E, I think everybody is applauding these days when companies step forward and take a stronger, commit more strongly to uh, uh, protecting the environment. But on the S, the issues are often contentious, especially in a partisan environment as has developed in the US in the last couple of years politically. And what are the some of the downsides that you've seen as companies become more active in addressing social issues? In that, as we do know, sometimes companies come under attack for taking a public stand on a partisan or a contentious social issue. So, what what have you? Uh, what what's the what are your warnings on that? And what have you seen that really works when companies do decide to get more directly into social issues and direct involvement therein? Great. And look, it's up to every company to decide how much it wants to become involved. Uh, there yep. is, again, no right answer on this one, as there is in so many areas. So uh, one, one thing that can be a problem is uh, the conflation of the CEO's personal views with that of the company. I don't care if you're talking liberal or conservative or or sensible or wacky, right? <laughs> you just, you should yeah. make sure that uh, the CEO can be a great spokesperson for you because they can speak to your employees and your customers and your investors and the public with authority, but make sure that the CEO isn't um, uh, conflating her or his views with those of the company. Uh, and one way to do that um, is to actually have clear criteria for when the company uh, will engage on issues, you know, not just have it be consistent with the company's mission and its values, but also be something that the company um, has some connection to their business, right? So the company doesn't and the CEO don't become just this roving social commentary commission, right? So one issue is uh, 
you know, not having a distinction between the CEO and the company's views. Another risk um, that companies uh, face here is backlash for not going far enough or for not being authentic. So we all know that you can face backlash, and I'll get into it for, for taking a position that people don't agree with. You are actually more likely to face perhaps even more acute backlash from people who agree with you, but don't think you went far enough or think you're inauthentic. Like, what the heck are you talking about um, Black Lives Matters when you have a mostly white board or perhaps all white senior management team? So um, one thing to do there is, you know, in deciding maybe not whether you take a stand on an issue, but how vocal you are and the way you phrase it is make sure your own house is in order before you go out taking a stand and suggesting what other people can do. The other thing, of course, is the backlash from people who disagree with you. And there are a couple of things you can do to, to, to help. Um, one of them is if you're going to take a stand grounded in the company's values, in the company's business, um, not in political and partisan terms. So say why this is important for X company, why this helps us be a better company. And, um, and you know, and, and not just join in the, the fray with some of the terminology that's sometimes used. The other thing is, um, you know, make your language, you want to be obviously empathetic um, to the people who are being most affected maybe by the harm that you're trying to address, but be inclusive in the response and make it clear why everyone has something at stake here. In fact, you know, even in the general area of diversity, equity, inclusion, for some of your employees, both in the US and frankly, internationally, um, and that's another issue you run across here is that taking stands on US issues don't necessarily play out around the globe in the same sort of way. You may want to lead with inclusivity. Inclusivity is something literally every employee can buy into. Some employees will, um, think diversity is for other people. And for some parts of the world, diversity isn't even a term that kind of particularly resonates with them, but inclusiveness does. So you might want to think about starting the discussion with your employee base about these issues um, around, around inclusivity. Yep. Well, my quick uh, summary line on that is the yes is very important in ESG. Uh, we've got to be involved, but tread carefully. Yes. Look to the issues that really relate to who you are and what you stand for in the region you operate. I do need to remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host today, Mike Yusim. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, my colleague. And we've been talking with Paul Washington, Executive Director of the ESG Center at the Conference Board. And Paul, as we begin to bring our time together to a close, I've got a more personal question, which is, what got you into this business? How, how did you end up where you are? <laughs> that was my question, Mike. I agree. <laughs> how did you get here? Well, I, I, I'll put it this way: I didn't mean to. So the way the way it actually all started for me. Um, so I was working at the Dime Savings Bank of New York, um, and I got there sort of. Um, like, I don't know, Typhoid Mary or the Flying Dutchman or something like that. And I showed up and within a few weeks, the SNL crisis hit the Northeast. And so the bank was wound up in very serious trouble. Uh, we were rated actually as a five by the FDIC, which meant we were in danger of imminent seizure. This is shortly after I got there. Oh, lucky. Um, but what I wound up doing was I wound up being asked to serve as corporate secretary. 
And I came to realize um, uh, that by making some modest changes in the way the board operated, we could make huge difference in the way the board functioned and its effectiveness, which had a major cascading effect on the rest of the organization, just adopting clear governance, having clear credit policies and so forth. So we, with the governance changes we made and the um, recapitalization that was undertaken by our brilliant leader, Dick Parsons, um, turned the bank from being rated a five in danger of imminent seizure to being rated one which is the absolute top you can possibly be. I think we were the only bank at that time that had ever made that transition. And we made it in about a year, year and a half. So I came, I was going to law school at night while working at the bank by day. And I came to understand the power of governance to transform an organization. And then I spent 20 years at Time Warner after a stint in practicing law, where I had the opportunity to have a sort of relatively broad remit, which was fortunate. Um, I was secretary of the board. Um, I also worked on the company's sustainability strategy, um, and I also worked on a corporate citizenship strategy. And so the combination of being able to work in the governance area, the citizenship area, the sustainability area, um, was terrific. And then, uh, you know, after I left Time Warner following the AT&T merger, um, I wound up being at the conference board where I've done programs for you know almost 20 years. And now I get to have the privilege of helping other companies address their ESG issues. So it's a it's I, I guess you're talking to someone who's kind of self-actualized. Um, I, I love what I do and uh, I feel very fortunate and it was utterly by accident. Yep. My guess is half our listeners are thinking the same thing about themselves, <laughs> yeah. uh, including uh, me and, and listening to you and, uh, Paul on that. So yeah. uh, we're getting close to our, our wrap up. I'd like our listeners to begin to think about the one or two points they'd really like to hang on to. But before that, Anne, why don't you yeah. jump back in? Oh, thank you, Mike. Well, I, I have a follow up question to yours, Mike. Um, so you were going to law school at night at Fordham. Right. And was your so tell me about your role as corporate secretary at the bank. Was that your first role out of college? Where was that in your in your early in your early career? Yeah, it was still fairly early, although at that point I had already worked for two U.S. senators, um, a congressman, a mayor and a lieutenant governor. So I had mostly had a career in government service at that point. So I approached the private sector as, um, uh, you know, with a public service mindset. So the chairman of the Dime Savings Bank at the time, Harry Albright, co-chaired a task force on affordable housing with the lieutenant governor, and I, I, I authored the report. So even when I was in government, I was working with the private sector, saw the value of public-private partnership. And so it was basically after a brief stint in government um, at the local and in state and federal levels, actually, all three, I wound up going to the bank and then um, and uh, took on the role first as a special assistant to the chair and, and CEO, and then as corporate secretary. And I think that framework of, of always looking whenever I was in the private sector and thinking about how we could, you know, I, I was animated by what we were doing to help the public. So working in a savings bank, I was animated working there, not just to make money really for our shareholders, which was critically important, right? I will never gain say that. Unlike the BRT, I will not put that last in the list, right? Um, but it was because we were helping people become homeowners. And the very best part of our 
mortgage portfolio at the Dime Savings Bank were our community reinvestment act loans. They performed when the rest of the loans we had made were going in the seller. The only area of our lending that never defaulted were our community reinvestment act loans to low income folks. So I so, so that's that's kind of a little bit of how I got to where I was. And then I decided, oh, I got to do something else with my life too. And so I went to law school. Yeah. And then you were at Yale as an undergrad. And just curious, what did you study as an undergraduate? I studied history. I history. Studied, yeah. All right. I hope everyone in our listening audience has heard that. <laughs> because from history uh, to the position that you hold is a wonderful, wonderful journey, Paul. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for asking. <laughs> All right, Paul, I've got, I've got a peculiar uh, final question that we're going to do the wrap up. For people out there that are thinking they'd kind of like to do what you're doing now, they really want to think about stakeholder capitalism, they want to think about companies and boards and ESG, what advice might you have for somebody who's maybe 20 years behind where you are now? You know, um, because of what we're talking about, stakeholder capitalism, ESG, corporate responsibility, it cuts across every function in the corporate world, you know, every department from law to finance to investor relations to human capital and so forth, right? So everyone, it touches everyone. It touches your business. You can be working in theme parks at Disney, and this is touching you. So I would say no matter where you are in any kind of company, and frankly, don't even have to be a company, wherever you are, you are touching these issues and you can have an impact on these issues. So look for opportunities, do a great job at your core job and look for opportunities where you can help whatever organization you're working for do even better financially and to do better in terms of social responsibility based on your current role. And then look for opportunities to collaborate with other people because, because all of these issues cut across the C-suite, they cut across organizations. Don't try to do it um, as a, in, a, in a silo. Reach out to other people who can help you accomplish what you think are goals, you come up with a better refined sense of the problem, the better way to get the solution. And you will be making a tangible difference even now, no matter where you are in an organization. Great. And I want to underscore that last statement. We all want to make a tangible difference. And it's our calling in life to find out where we can do that best. We're going to do now an ADR, which is similar to an AAR, but this is the after discussion review. So, Anne, let's start with you. And I'd like listeners to do the same thing uh, wherever they may be sitting at the moment, picking something out that's going to be important for each of us, as we say it at this end, and all the listeners at their end for future reference from our discussion with Paul just now. Anne, why don't you get it going? All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I'm going to pull that phrase, Paul, that you used along the course of our discussion, uh, radical humanity, because I think that it connects to everything that we've talked about. You know, on the one hand, how can uh, companies do better on the on the areas of E, S and G? So and in part, it is through their governance and the way in which the board oversees the um, the activities of the organization. It's also through the management. How is the C-suite organized? How does it take up the leadership role? So I think that human element that is really critical as we make this 
paradigm shift in the United States from shareholder to stakeholder. So I think that's where I would start, Mike. Great, and thank you. Paul, the ADR. I got a couple of thoughts. One is about the top of the house, um, which is the board in the C-suite. They are being asked to do more than ever before and serve more people than ever before. And their, their jobs are harder than ever before. So I think there's, um, so there's some real sort of soul searching that the people at the top of the house need to do to say, um, do we have the right people? to carry out all of, first of all, what is it that we should truly be focusing on? And do we have the right people to carry it out? Do we have the right systems to, to carry out the right governance processes, that dreaded G word, right? So I think that's something that's important. Then I'm gonna say something that may be a little bit provocative. I actually think there's a very important role for the, for the middle of the organization, because I'm actually not one of those people who believes that uh, the tone is set at the top. I actually think culture is defined in the middle of an organization because mm -hmm. the top comes and goes. It's the middle that tends to stay. And I would say for everyone who's working at an organization, think about how you can make a difference on these issues. Um, think about the opportunities, think about the positive. And we'll be doing a, a working group next year on building culture, uh, building sustainability into the culture of your organization, not just into your goals, not just into your business processes, but into the very DNA. And if you care about these issues, it's up to you in the middle of the organization, wherever you sit in the organization, to help build sustainability into your culture. And it's, that's your job. Don't wait for the top of the house to give you the green light. All right, Anne and Paul, very helpful. I'm gonna make a summary on what I've just heard from the two of you, and that is at the top of the pyramid and or even the middle of the pyramid, uh, this is, a, our focus is on leadership and action and the kind of action in the future is gonna to have to be similar to, but also different from leadership and action in the past. More focus on the world at large, on ESG, uh, more authenticity at the very top and throughout the organization. So that's it for me. Paul, we want to uh, thank you very much for joining us yet again. Uh, if listeners want to learn more about the conference board and the many reports that you provide, how would they go about that? They visit conference-board.org or better yet go to TCB. Dot org. That's that's three letters, tcb.org. And a lot of our reports, at least the executive summaries, are available um, free and online. And if they want to go deeper, they can become a member of the conference board. We are a 501c3 charity. We're a great organization to belong to. And belonging to us helps actually, um, I think, move the world ahead. Paul, thank you so much on that. You know where to get more, everybody. Special thanks, by the way, not only to Paul for joining us, but to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Duke. I'm Mike Hussein. I've been here with Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 